So here's what I know on Daylight Savings. We've been, I don't know, 23 weeks in the book of Exodus uh, so far. And when you woke up this morning, an hour less of sleep than you normally had otherwise, your first thought was, I cannot wait to watch the bumper video for Exodus for the 24th time. <laughs> so I'm so sorry our screens went out and you could not enjoy that video again this morning. Uh, uh, so speaking of, uh, when I was in middle school, I think I've shared this story before, uh, I was homeschooled from the third to seventh grade, and extroverted kid, I was really excited to get back into school with all my friends, and so I go eighth grade and uh, get the first report card, bring it home, all A's and B's, everything is good, uh, so that's all great, and then something happened after that, I don't know if I just like was like, I can do this, it doesn't matter, stop kind of studying and all of these things. And I think it was uh, the interim report. So this was before the grades were online all the time. And so you'd have like each quarter, you'd have your report card. And then halfway through the quarter, you'd have an interim report that you would bring home and show your parents and how you do it. Well, my interim report was bad. And I, we would walk home, it was across the street. So me and my friends would walk to school. And as we're walking home and I'm seeing like C's and like D's, I'm thinking, guys, it's been a good 12 years. I've been we've had a lot of memories together. I don't think I'm gonna see you again. Um, and so we go home, and I don't remember everything that happened. I was just like, I'm dead. Like, I'm, it's over. It was good. It's, it's over. And so I think we had already planned to go to the movies that night as a family. And so we're at the movie theater, and we're like in the lobby before the movie thought starts. And so my mom and my dad and me, I don't know where my brothers were, they sit me down at this table, and I'm like, here it is. I'm dead. They're gonna send me back in the van and say, sit there, and then we come home. You're you're over. Um, and so we start talking about the grades, and they simply look at me and they say, Dylan, when we get your report card, you're going to ha have all A's and B's. Didn't get in trouble, didn't get grounded, didn't have to go sit in the van, I got to sit in the movie, right, I got to watch the movie. What happened there, although my parents had every right to punish me, to discipline me, to get me to focus on my schoolwork, they took that opportunity uh, to give grace, to set expectations, and to say, we're going to continue living our life. Now, I share that story because today we're continuing through the book of Exodus. Uh, and we're talking, if you were here, if you've been with us, we've been seeing how God has taken the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and has provided for them time and time again. Uh, his, his, his powerful plagues and miracles got them out of Egypt. He's provided food, water, protection. They've been attacked by an enemy and he provided for them. He's done all these things. And then they decide to covenant with God. God gives them the law and says, here's what it looks like for me to bless you and for me to be in your presence. They say, yes, they want it. The law, again, was a good thing for them. And Moses goes up onto a mountain for 40 days. They freak out, as we saw last week. They're not sure what to do. And so they create a golden calf. And they say, this is now Yahweh's presence. They try to make God into an image that they could create for themselves. They rebelled against God. And now they're trying to figure out what's going to happen. And so if you have a Bible, uh, we'll be in Exodus 33. If not, there's a black one around you. I think it's around page 80 in there, Genesis, Exodus. So it's right in the beginning of your Bible. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 this morning. Again, we've seen so far that God has given him his power, Israel his power. He's given Israel his presence. And yet Israel rebelled against them. God said he was going to destroy them, but in his grace, he decided in their repentance, even though they hadn't done anything, he said, I'm not going to destroy you. Uh, instead, uh, those who led this rebellion were killed. Uh, a plague struck the camp of Israel, and now they're going to try to figure out what does it look like to go forward. 
And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 33, verse 1. If you are wondering, again, we're about 24 weeks into Exodus. As we prepare this morning, I was praying about what we're going to do after. Um, and, you know, and then I realized the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all really one long story. And so after some prayer and fasting, I figured we'd do Leviticus after this. And so <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be terrible. Just kidding. That would not be terrible. But not today, maybe sometime in the future. So anyway, Exodus 33, chapter, verse 1. Again, uh, they, have, they created this golden calf, uh, and they're trying to figure out what are we going to do from here? How are we going to move forward? Here's what it says. Uh, Moses, by the way, later in 33, it tells us he's in the tent of meeting. So he's with Israel. The tent of meeting was outside the camp of Israel before they built the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell. And so from time to time, Moses would go out into the tent of meeting to kind of commune with God and to learn from him. And that's where we find ourselves. Verse one, here's what it says. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And so what we see happening here is that God still promises to drive out the wicked people from the promised land that he's going to deliver Israel to and give it to Israel. So after everything that they have done, and again, we can read this as kind of objective third-party observers because we don't live in this time. We don't know any of these ancient Israelites. And so it's easy for us to maybe even get frustrated at God's grace to them. He rescued them. He provided provisions for their, uh, for their journey and the gold and the jewelry that they then used to create a golden altar with. Uh, he's provided them clothes and food and water and protection. He's done all of these things for them. They still, they rebel. They do this golden calf thing. They've complained time and time and time again. And God still fulfills, promises to fulfill his promises to them, right? This is called grace. Now, really quickly, so we don't get caught up here. I know there's the question of, well, is this fair that God is punishing and driving out these people in the promised land that Israel is going to take over? I'll just say two things uh, really quickly. Uh, number one, uh, the people in the promised land were a wicked people. There is child sacrifice and any number of things going on there. And I think it is interesting, at least in the scriptural narrative, and even in our, think of it in our time today, we're very justice oriented, which is a good thing. But then when God deals with evil, then we get upset with it. Right? God is dealing with evil with what's going on in the land. And so we shouldn't, I mean, yes, we, should have, we can have questions, but this isn't like an unjustified act. And the second thing I would say is that when Israel does finally get to the promised land, there are times where they begin to act like the nations that were there before them. And what happened? They were also driven out of the promised land. So when they acted that way, they also re received God's discipline. And so uh, well, all that to say, God is giving them grace here. And here's what we see. I think one of the things that, sc that screams at us as we continue through our book of Exodus, and it's the reality that God's people do not deserve to be God's people. God's people do not deserve it. The Israelites do not deserve it. They didn't do anything, but it was God and his grace that called them, that protected them, that provided for them, that was with them, that told them, here's what it looks like for my presence to be among you. And they said, yes, they didn't do anything. And listen, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this also applies to you. You did not do anything to reserve God's grace. It's not like you're better than or I'm better than anyone else. We've simply responded to the invitation that God gives everyone. This is why there should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. 
There should be no Christian who kind of thinks of themselves as awesome, as better than, because they did nothing, just like Israel did nothing. And in fact, just like Israel, we have all gone our own way. We have all rebelled. We have all been sinful. We have all made our own decisions that do not honor God and do not honor people. Now, again, we're all broken. We're fallen. It's not that there can't be times of arrogance among us. Of course there can. But the hope would be that if you are a follower of Christ, people would not view you or me as someone who's full of arrogance and pride. Because followers of Jesus cannot have that because you did nothing to deserve it, just like Israel did nothing to deserve it. It kind of makes me think of my cat, Phoebe. In fact, I have a picture for you on the screen. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, We have a cat named Phoebe, right? And she's a great cat. But she ain't do nothing to deserve the life that she has. She gets food every day. She gets water every day. She lives in a climate-controlled environment. She even gets her bathroom cleaned, right? She ain't do jack. But yet, she lives a life of luxury, right? And and in fact, there are times where she has rebelled against us, and we still took her back in. So, for example, about 18 months ago, a year and a half ago in the fall, uh, our cat ran outside. Sometimes she kind of runs in our backyard. We got a little fence, and she hangs out every once in a while. She stays out overnight, but normally she doesn't do that. She ran outside. She was gone, no exaggeration, for an entire month. We had no idea where she went. We thought so she somehow died. She, she finally shows up. She is super skinny, right? Her like, body's like vibrating. That's what she does when we come home. She's really excited. But like her whole body was shaking because she was so excited to be back, right? And so we fed her. We took her in. She didn't apologize for the trauma. You know, any of that stuff, right? And then in January, she does it again, right? Remember in January when it was 35 degrees, 34 degrees every day? We thought Noah was coming back, right? This is, it was raining a lot. Okay, anyway. uh, So it was raining a ton. She goes outside, and it's like, she's gone for three days. And like, are you going to freeze to death? Are you dying? And she finally shows up, and what do we do? We take her back in. We love her. We feed her. We nurture her. I'll just say this. Um, If she was a cat that like hid under the bed, I would get rid of her because I'm not going to pay for the maintenance of of an animal if I don't get to enjoy it. So at least she's like nice, a nice cat, right? (laughs) But she didn't do anything. We just like let her come in. And in fact, the day that we adopted her years ago, we didn't know this. We went to like the animal shelter thing. They had just had a cat adoption. So they only had four cats left and she was the only kitten that was there. So of course we took the kitten. Like she ain't do nothing. And she lives a great life, okay? And so it is for us, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, the Israelites, again, did nothing to deserve to be the people of God. And in his grace, yet again, he rescues them and gives them mercy. So he says, I prom- I'm gonna, my promise to you that you've broken your covenant with me that you do not deserve. I'm still going to deliver you the land, the possessions, the wealth that you don't deserve. But there is going to be one small issue, and here's what it is, verse 3. He says this to Moses. He says, go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry, and I, dis- and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of the jewelry from Mount Horeb, where they currently or- were, onward. So for the rest of the journey. And so what we see here is a very tragic reversal. 
That God says, I will still deliver to the things that I promised to deliver you, but I will not be with you. My presence that you made a mockery of, um, that you kind of thought that you could do whatever you want and still experience my goodness and grace would crush you. My righteousness will crush you, and so I will not go with you. In fact, this is him being merciful to them, that I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to give you what, what I'm not going to do to you what you deserve, but you will not have me. And so what happens after this is that the Israelites mourn, right? They're sorrowful. They don't want to go without the, God, without the Lord's presence. It's interesting that God had given them what they wanted, right? In verse 32, they wanted to make God kind of in their own image where they can control and manipulate. And then, and then also he wants to give them the, the land and the possessions, right? All this stuff that Israel actually wanted, or so it seems they get the land, the wealth, the protection, all of these, but they don't get him. And so Israel responds by mourning because they have all these things that they want, but without the Lord, it's not worth it. It kind of makes me think of our kids are three and five. And there are times where I'll joke where I'm like, all right, we're going to leave you here, right? We're not, we're not going to stay at home with you. And they're at the age where like that terrifies them, right? Even though, think about it. They could eat all the snacks they wanted. There's no restriction on screen time if mom and dad can't turn it off, right? They can have all of the things that kids would be like, what makes life awesome, but they don't get their parents and they don't want it because they're terrified, right? All of these great things in and of themselves are not good enough if they can't have the thing that actually matters. And so what happens is that Moses, again, the next few verses, he's in the tent of meeting. He's meeting with the Lord outside the camp. He tells them um, that he is not going to go with them. And so Israel mourns. Right? And so Moses here is pleading to the Lord on the behalf of the Israelites, like asking God to go with them. Because again, when they hear this news, they don't want to go forward without the Lord um, because it's just not worth it. It's not worth it to them. Now, I think it's interesting because if you think about our society and our culture today, uh, we are the most medicated people in human history. And I don't just mean like medicine. I mean entertainment and technology and screens, and games. Like, we have the most amount of things to entertain us and to numb us of all these things going on. We've got heat and AC, right? We've got all of these things. But yet, we are more anxious than ever, right? You and I, we are more anxious and depressed uh, and fearful than ever. And I think Exodus is making the point of all, of all human condition, and it's the reality that God's presence is our greatest need. God's presence, not all of the stuff that we want, although some of these things are needed and are helpful, but our greatest need is actually God's presence, right? When things are good or bad, in excess or in nothing, if we don't have God, we actually are missing out on what our soul is desperately longing for. What we see happening in Exodus is that Israel is mourning because they have all the stuff that they could want, but their greatest need is being taken from them. And it's interesting if you think back uh, in your life, maybe particularly when you were a kid, there were some things that were very important to you. And then you realized, although they were good things, they weren't actually the ultimate thing that you wanted. So like, for example, like when you're at school, some, for some people, GPA was a really big deal. You got to get a really big, great GPA so you can get a job or the, so you can go to college. And, and when you're in college, you got to get a really great GPA. But then what happens? Once you have a degree in your first job, it don't matter. Like, none of that matters, right? You thought it was important, but ain't no one ever asked me what my GPA was, right? Nobody, right? Having a degree is great, but once you get that job, nobody cares. You thought it was very important, and not to say it wasn't, but it wasn't as important as you might have thought in the moment. Or think about when you're a kid, right? A lot of people, when they were kids, like, wanted to be an adult so they could do whatever they wanted. No one could tell them what to do. And then you become adult, and you're like, 
Bring me back. I don't want responsibilities. I don't want bills. Like, that's, people want to go back, right? Because they realize it wasn't maybe all cracked up it was going to be. Or think of it this way, right? I grew up in the age where instant messenger was a thing, you know, online, MySpace, and like profiles started to be a thing. And so I always thought it was funny. You know, they talk about like how your, your friends were like the greatest thing ever. Like, couldn't live without this person. Life would be terrible without you. Like, I, BFF for life, like the number four, L-Y-F-E. Like, we just love each other. Life would be awesome. And then you, like, grow up and you move away from home and you, like, don't talk to any of your childhood friends anymore. Like, maybe one or two, right? In the moment, you're like, these are like my ride or die, right? This is it. And then it's like, eh. Now, here, I'm not saying that those things were not unimportant. Clearly, they mattered, right? And we have things in our life today that clearly they matter. But they are not our greatest need. They are good things that leave us anxiety-ridden and depressed and anxious and fearful if we do not have God's presence. In fact, this is what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 8. You can flip there or I can just read it for you, just a couple of verses. Uh, In Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus is with his disciples, and here's what it says in verse 34 to 36. He says, calling the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? Some translations will say, and yet lose his soul. And here's what we see here. That Jesus is saying what is happening in Exodus. That what good is it to have all the things that you want and not the thing that you actually need? What good is it? It's not good. In fact, I wouldn't typically encourage this exercise, but you could try it this week if you wanted to. Uh, Next time you're out shopping and you see like a copy of like People Magazine or Us Weekly, or if you go online to like TMZ, which is a celebrity gossip site, what will you find? You will find stories of people after people who have wealth that we cannot imagine have privilege that we cannot imagine and influence and social media followers and power whose lives are falling apart. They have all of the things that we think we need. In fact, I was listening to a podcast this week by a guy in his 30s who made his first six figures when he was only 17 years old, super successful. He made his first seven figures when he was in his early 20s. He was saying he's been chief of staff for some of the richest people in the world. He's like billionaires that I could name. If I said them, you would know who you are. I've worked for them. Uh, He's now a Christian. And he said one of the things he started to pick up on in all of his success and all of his riches and his finances as he was working for all these billionaires is that their lives were awful. Marriages were falling apart. They had no good, the relationships with their kids were terrible. Their physical health was awful because they were first to get to work, last to leave, constantly doing anything. They couldn't take a vacation. They couldn't take a break. And he was like, I don't want this. He's like, I'm telling you, it is not worth it. And this is where Israel finds themselves. Again, I want to be clear. This is not to say that you can't have dreams or desires or that having dreams and desires and wants is a bad thing as long as as long as we know that the longing beneath our dreams and desires can't be fulfilled by that dream. 
right? You can have desires and dreams as long as you know that the, the, the desire behind that cannot be fulfilled, which is what are our desires? Longing, acceptance, that people actually love us and care for us and, and care about us, like all of these things that we think money and influence and relationships will give us, right? As long as we know that they can actually fulfill us. And we all know this, right? Maybe you haven't achieved some of like your big lifelong dreams you had as a kid. Like I remember when I was in kindergarten, it was like bring something that to, to school that you wanted to be when you bro- grow up and I brought a football helmet and my muscles didn't quite develop enough for me to play in the NFL, <laughs> right? That dream has not happened. <laughs> but there are things in all of our lives that we have gotten and in the moment we thought, if I could get this, then it would be fine. That relationship, that car, that new phone, whatever it might be, we've gotten some things that we wanted and within a week, it's like, it's nice, but we're on to the next thing. It can be found lacking and this is where Israel finds themselves. This is where Israel is. They're going to get everything they want, and it's still not enough. They're still not sure what to do. And so here's what happens next in Exodus chapter 33. If you look down to verse 15, here's what happens next. Again, Moses is still talking to the Lord, begging that God's presence would actually stay with them. And here's what he says. Here's what Moses says, verse 15 in chapter 33. He says, as your presence does not go, Moses said to him, do not make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished from this, uh, by this from all the people on the face of the earth. Right? Moses is saying here that what good is it if they leave and God's presence is not with them? Right? That's what makes them distinct. Not that they were just powerful and that they were saved and rescued. All that stuff is cool. But what really makes them distinct is that God's presence, Yahweh himself, is actually with them. And if they do not have Yahweh, well, then what makes them different from everybody else? He's saying that we need you. And so here's God's response. Look at this. Verse 17. It's like, what? Here's Here's what happens next. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Why? Don't go with them. Right? If you're watching a movie, you're like, God, don't do it. They don't deserve it. They're going to do something dumb again. right? Don't go. And he goes. Why? Here, here, in the, here, here's why God decides to go with them. Right? In part, because of Moses' faithfulness, as it says here. Uh, in part, because Israel, has, is, Israel mourn, is mourning. They're actually repentant, and we'll see this next week. They're actually repentant for what's happening. He decides to go with them. That they, don't, like, they haven't done anything except said, I'm sorry. They haven't done nothing. And God's like, I'm going to go with you. And in fact, what happens the rest of chapter 33 is that God says, I'm going to go. And so Moses asked God if he can see his glory and his honor. And so God says, essentially, go back up Mount Sinai. Uh, you can't see my face or you can't see all my glory because you will die. Uh, no human can see my glory and, and live. But basically, go hide in a rock. My glory will pass by you. So you can see a, basically a part of my glory. Uh, so you can do that, and also take two more tablets up with you, because the first two tablets were crushed that had God's commandments on them when Moses came down the mountain and saw them worshiping the calf. So he says, go on the mountain, you can see a part of my glory, and bring these tablets with you. And so that's what he does. And so Moses goes up onto the mountain, and this leads us to the most, uh, uh, most influential passage in all of Scripture, which is Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7. Exodus 34, verse 5 through 7, it is the most quoted Scripture in all of scripture. Exodus 34, five through seven is the most quoted passage in scripture in all of scripture. It's the most referenced in within scripture. And here's what it says. Moses is on Mount Sinai. It says, the Lord came down in a cloud, 
stood with him there, stood with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, right? I am, or Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining his faithful love to a thousand, to thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. What makes this passage so unique is that this is not just people and authors of the Bible talking about God. This is God himself describing who he is. And what does he say? That he is compassionate, that he is gracious. Being gracious means that you give someone what they do not deserve. So God is not just merciful and that he doesn't give us what we do deserve, right, which is punishment and judgment and death. Or like in my movie example, my parents had every right to punish me, so they gave mercy to me in that moment. I wasn't grounded. I wasn't going to die. I, was, I can see my friends. But God also gives grace. He not only forgives us, but then he invites us into his kingdom. Again, it's a small, silly example, but I received grace in that moment because I not only didn't get in trouble, but I got to go to the movie, right? I received grace. God says, I don't only give you mercy, but I give you what you do not deserve. He says he is slow to anger and bounding in loyal or faithful love. Now, again, this word faithful love, loyal love, depending on your translation, we talked about this a little bit ago, is this Hebrew word chesed, Everybody say chesed. Just kidding. Don't because spitting in your mask is gross, right? <laughs> it's this Hebrew word chesed. And it's really, really hard to articulate in the English language what is happening there. But really this word chesed is this word, it's this, it's this uh, description that love is a decision. It's a decision and it is a commitment. You can kind of think of like, like on a wedding day when a husband and wife vow to each other what they will do, except God actually keeps his vows. But it's not just a vow of obligation. It's not just because I said that I would love you, that I'm stuck to it no matter what. It's that I said that I loved you, and I'm going to do it, but I also want to. I heard one scholar kind of articulate it like this. I mean, think of like a married couple who have been married for over 50 years, and they're old. And the husband and, her, and his wife, and the wife has some debilitating illness that requires constant care. And so this husband has to spend time with his wife and, and care for her all the time. And we would look at that in our society today of like freedom and doing whatever we want and be like, that must be awful. Stinks for him that he can't live his life. And yet if you ask that husband, he would tell you there is not a thing in the world he would rather do. That he is terrified for the day that his wife dies and he no longer gets to be with her. That they had kids together and grandkids together and memories. And there is no more joy in his life to take care of for all the time because she is his best friend. This is the type of love God has for you. It's the type of love that he has for Israel, which is why people ignorantly, and I don't mean this in a bad sense, I just mean in the literal sense of the word, like have no idea about scripture. People ignorantly or incorrectly create this dichotomy between the Old Testament God, like God the Father, and the New Testament God, like Jesus, right? God in the Old Testament is vengeful and mean and wrathful, but Jesus is all about love and butterflies, and it doesn't matter because everybody's awesome, right? We, we have this like dichotomy here. But then what happens, so if that's what you think, then you read a passage like this, and you would say, well, this doesn't belong here, because God, Yahweh, God the Father, he's not this. And yet God says that this is 
This is who he is. Now, again, if you read this in context, if you've been with us throughout Exodus, you would say this is who God is, right? It makes sense that he describes himself this way. After all that he has done for them, he has rescued them, he has provided for them, he has given them food and clothing and shelter and provision, that he has said, I'm going to have my presence dwell with you, my power is going to be with you, by the way, because nothing that you have done, simply because I love you and you're going to complain and you're going to go your own way and I'm still going to be there, right? This is who God is. This makes entire sense if you've actually been tracking the Exodus story, right? In context, we would say this is who God is, right? You cannot say anything else but this. I like to think of, uh, this kind of reminds me, I'll put it this way, of fruit snacks, okay? And you're like, what? Let me just explain. Uh, fruit snacks are a, a, um, a food that parents give their kids, and they're called fruit snacks so that parents don't feel bad about it. Um, they're gummies, and they are pure sugar. And my kids love fruit snacks. If you have kids, they love fruit snacks. Every kid knows what a fruit snack is, right? They just love them, right? They want them all the time. And the problem, however, is that sometimes, you know, we got two kids, and so if we say they can have fruit snacks, or if they got their friends over and they say fruit snacks, everyone's like, yeah. And then you go to the pantry and you realize you have like one pack left. All of a sudden, fruit snacks ain't that exciting, right? Ain't nobody want to share their fruit snacks. It'd be better not to have mentioned it than to say you got to share, right? And I think if we're being honest, we often view God's love like fruit snacks, right? That God has a certain allotment or a certain amount for you. And if you use it, if you eat some of it, well, you better slow down because once it's gone, it's gone. That's it. And yet when you read the Exodus story and all the story, really, in its fulfillment in Jesus, you find out that God's love is like fruit snacks that never run out, right? If you drop your fruit snacks on the ground, you get another fruit snack. If you share it with your friends, you get more fruit snacks. God's love is like an Oprah Winfrey Christmas special. You get a fruit snack, and you get a fruit snack, and you get a fruit snack, and it's not even bad for you to eat. Like, you can have as many as you want. It's abounding. It's exploding with fruit snacks, right? Israel is this raining fruit snacks right now, and they do nothing to deserve it. It's like fruit snacks, and I say it this way. Here's the point, and here's what we need to know as we read throughout Exodus and really all of the scripture, that God forgives sin abundantly, not reluctantly. He forgives your sin in abundance, not out of reluctance, not be like, well, hey, I'll forgive you this time, but don't ask again for a month. That ain't what happened. Every single time you and I are honest with God, he says, I love you, I forgive you, and you are my son, and you are my daughter every time. No matter who you are and what you have done, he doesn't even act as, ask us to shape up. Israel does, has not done anything, and yet he gives them grace again. Why? Because they had honestly and truly repented. God forgives sin abundantly, not reluctantly. And again, I think we talked about this last week. Sometimes we struggle with this idea because we feel like, well, maybe I've done some terrible things or maybe I haven't done a lot of terrible things, but I've done a lot of things and I've kind of gone my own way for such a long time. Like, why would God forgive me? And I just want to say again, who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? Right? Who are you to tell God? I don't think you guys have, I don't think anyone's done like Israel right now, right? God hasn't like done plagues and like saved you out of slavery and like provided for you miraculously food and water and like showed up in your living room with his presence. Like he's done all of this for Israel and they still rebel. And again, we see here that God forgives their sin abundantly, not reluctantly. And so Israel for the, la for the rest of uh, Exodus chapter 34, they don't do anything but repent. And what happens? God re-enters into a covenant with them. Right, less than 40 or 40 days after they had already said they're going to covenant with God and then broke it, he re-enters into a covenant 
with them. And he tells them, my presence will go with you. Not because you did anything, but because I'm a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And so the rest of 34, I want to read the, the I want to just read verse 7 for a second in case you read ahead, and I don't want you to get cut up on it. Again, here's what it says in verse 7. Uh, he says, again, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Then it says this, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, we look at that, and we're like, oh, what's going on here? Uh, this is not saying that their kids, like if you sin, your kids are cursed. In fact, other places in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, it says that children are not responsible for the sins of their parents. But here's what we do know, right? The consequences of our actions are just are what they are. Our kids do kind of feel the impacts of what we have done. However, uh, the third and the fourth was a Hebrew idiom that essentially means as long as it takes. Even in the book of Proverbs, there are kind of Proverbs, like if you act a certain way or do a certain way and you experience blessing, right? It's, it means as long as it takes. In other words, what he's saying here, what God is saying here is that if children act in the way of their rebellious parents, well, then they'll experience the same disconnection from God. But yet, if they repent and follow me, what does it say? That his love is for thousands of generations. We're supposed to see the contrast here, that he desires to love and can give grace to us. We just have to ask it and receive it. And so that's what happens. For the rest of 34, God reviews, re, uh, renews the covenant and the promise to lead Israel to the promised land, that his presence is going to stay with them and go with them. Uh, so again, Moses on the Mount Sinai, when he's hearing on this, uh, they talk about the Sabbath again, and then Moses' face is like glowing as he comes down the mountain. Everyone's like freaking out, like what happened? Because his face is like white and all these sort of things. Um, and, and all that to say, here's what we want to say. I want to read one more passage in John. Uh, but as we kind of conclude this section of Exodus, talking about the laws and the commandments and Israel blowing it and the tabernacle and in all of these things, all of this stuff in Exodus is pointing to Jesus. In John chapter 1, you can flip there are just a couple of verses I just want to read to you. The last thing I'll read to you. Again, we've seen throughout the series that Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And everything happening in Exodus is pointing to how Jesus is the fulfillment all these, of all these things. And so in John chapter 1, uh, John, God, one of Jesus' disciples, is talking about Jesus and who he is and why he has come. And in chapter 1, verse 14, he writes this. He says, the word, which is Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the word dwelt there, if you literally translate it from the Greek, it is that the Lord, uh, the word pitched his tent or the Lord or the word tabernacled among us, right? It's this Exodus imagery here that he came and he lived among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16 and 17, it says this, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, from Jesus's fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is that Moses brought the law. So God through Moses gave the law to the Israelites, which were commands to be followed, to walk in life and to have God's presence. Again, they were a positive thing, not a restrictive thing. Like if I came up to you and I said, hey, what if I could tell you exactly what you had to do to experience God's blessing and presence in your life? You would want to know, like exactly, like give me a box to check. 
That's what Israel had. So do this and you can experience my presence. And in fact, what we see here is that Moses, even in that, could barely look upon the presence of God without hiding in the cleft of a rock, without getting struck down and killed. And now Jesus has come, and what does he say? That you and I can look at Jesus face to face, that he is the fullness of God among us, that you and I can see him. And so when it says that this is grace upon grace, he's saying that the law was grace. What does it look like to honor him? And that Jesus' coming was grace because nobody deserved it. Just like Israel, we have gone our own way, and God in his grace said, I'm going to make a way for you and us, to, you and I to receive the grace and mercy of God. And, you know, put it another way, that the gospel and the good news of Jesus of what he has done is good news. That the only reason that you can even look at Jesus is because of Jesus. It's not because of you and you trying to be a good person, right? Are you trying to give? Are you trying to pray? Are you trying to not watch bad things and trying not to gossip? The only reason you can look at Jesus and receive Jesus is because of Jesus, because he loves you and he cares for you. And the invitation for us is the same as it was for Israel. Repentance leads to grace, leads to God's mercy and power in your life. In other words, here's kind of this main idea that we'll end with this morning. What we see throughout Exodus and ultimately see in the fulfillment of Jesus is that God always responds to repentance with grace. God always not sometimes, not if you're a good enough person, not if he's in a good mood, not if you haven't asked in a while, but always responds to repentance with grace. Always. It's not repent and do X, Y, and Z. It's repent, experience my love, uh, feel my goodness and my grace to you, and allow that to impact how you live and where you go. And so again, I don't know what you walked in with this morning. I don't know what the struggles and the doubts and the questions that you have, but you and I need to know and remember that God always responds to repentance with grace. He's inviting us to see and experience who he is. And I think it should be worth mentioning that the blessings in scripture about knowing God and about feeling his presence, they actually only apply to people who repent. They are not a blessing for everybody. People who actually repent and desire Jesus, those are the people that experience God's blessing. And the good news is it's open to everyone, no matter who you are. This is not like this is good news. Let me be a good person for a week. And then maybe next Sunday when I come back, then I can experience God's grace and ask for it because I did better than I did last past week. That's not what's happening. So anytime that you and I are honest about our need for God, his grace is abounding in faithful love.